Welcome to Looks Like New on KGNU's It's the Economy. I'm Nathan Schneider, a professor of media studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. This is a show that asks old questions about new technology. We join you on the fourth Thursday of every month on the Old Fashioned Radio, or you can listen online as a podcast. Looks Like New is a production of the Media Enterprise Design Lab at CU Boulder. This month, our guest is Maria Bostillos. She's founder of Brick House, which calls itself the Wolfproof Media Cooperative. She's also the founding editor of Popula, an online news and culture magazine that was built around blockchain technology like Bitcoin and things like that. And her reporting has appeared in the New York Times and the New Yorker, the All, and the Columbia Journalism Review, where she served uh, and continues to serve as the public editor for MSNBC. Uh, we're going to be talking about the question of uh, whether news needs new tech uh, or what kinds of models can uh, uh, can save the, uh, the, the industry of journalism as it continues to bleed reporters and infrastructure. Many communities have lost their local newspapers and, and other news organizations and there's this widespread search underway for the new models that will sweep in and save the news. Our guest today has been involved in several of these efforts, uh, including Popula, the online news and culture magazine, uh, trying out some new technology, and, and now Brickhouse, a subscription cooperative whose members are diverse publications that share a collective paywall. So uh, subscribers can you know, subscribe to all of them at once by, um, by subscribing through one of them. Uh, Brickhouse recently raised over $90,000 on Kickstarter, uh, and I should confess that I was curious enough to contribute myself. Uh, by using a publication-owned cooperative model, it's kind of a new version of the Associated Press, uh, uh, which is also a cooperative since it was founded in the 1840s and, and has become a critical piece of news infrastructure uh, around the world. And, you know, I'll be honest, I'm, I'm really interested in the emerging news co-ops. I've, I've done some research on them, some, uh, uh, some uh, a paper on, on how different kinds of cooperative models have, have fared in, in the U.S. media. But, uh, you know, ultimately, I, I think we need to be cautious about um, thinking that any one model is going to solve the problems of journalism. I think it's important to remember that um, from the very beginning of the American Republic, there was a postal subsidy uh, for journalism, a recognition that um, through the post office that uh, the public needed to subsidize uh, the production of the public good of journalism. And uh, now as we move toward uh, you know, a digital uh, infrastructure for journalism, we need to think about what the new postal subsidy is. What is the way that we uh, as, a, as a public are going to um, contribute to ensuring that, that public good journalism uh, is possible? Now, th that said, um, when we do make that commitment to renew our, uh, our, our old um, uh, uh, contribution to the commons of journalism, I think co-ownership through cooperatives and similar organizations is a really important strategy uh, for fostering more accountable and mission-centered journalism. If we're going to support good journalism as a, as a collective, as a public, you know, we want to make sure that, that our, our reporters and our news organizations are accountable to us in, uh, in, in, um, in the ways we need them to be, especially at a time when, um, when you know, faith and, you know, and, and uh, a kind of shared uh, body of truth uh, in, in, 
in the news industry is kind of under threat and we see um, people uh, uh, mistrusting each other's uh, news organizations in such dramatic ways. We need new mechanisms to build, um, to build accountability, to build trust, uh, and, uh, and a kind of shared body of, of, um, you know, uh, of journalistic infrastructure. Uh, but, you know, really, what do I know? Um, I'm just uh, studying and talking about it. Uh, Maria Bastios, who we're going to be talking with uh, here, is actually doing it. Maria, welcome to Looks Like New. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Nathan. It's a pleasure. Now, you call your new project um, Brick House a wolf-proof media cooperative. What do you mean by wolf-proof? Well, the name came up when um, my colleague Tom Skoka and I were discussing how we wanted to portray what we were doing to the public. And we decided, or just casually in conversation, I mentioned, I just want to make sure we build something that can't just be blown down because both of us had worked for all these different outlets uh, that had been destroyed by various outside forces that had nothing to do with the success or failure of the journalism that we were doing but just you know peter thiel showed up and sued gawker or you know like DNA info was like ruined uh, by Joe Ricketts, you know, but none of that had to do with readers or journalists. It was just some outside force that came and didn't like what was being written about or said. And so that was kind of how it, how it sort of started. Um, it wasn't even. So we're our, talking about fairy tales here. We're talking about huffing and puffing and blowing houses down, right? We are. And we made a little video that explains how our old houses were made of sticks or straw, and now we're going to move into brick <laughs> for our next project. <laughs> and so, what what do you think was so strawish about, um, or is so strawish about about media today? What is what makes them so vulnerable to the to the wolves? Who are the wolves? You mentioned Peter Thiel, who who sued Gawker into into oblivion. Uh, but you know, who who do you have in mind? What is the threat model that that you're working from? What we've seen so far is that journalistic outlets uh, are kind of commonly attacked through ownership and through money. Um, we saw at Gamergate that Gawker was attacked through the, an advertiser boycott. And when the source of the money that runs the journalism is a vulnerability, uh, it's either you know, a, a hostile force will like buy uh, a an outlet like what happened with Sheldon Edelson at the Las Vegas Review Journal where he bought it in secret and, you know, against the express wishes over a long lot of years of the people who who worked there and ran the paper. He had to conceal his identity in order to do that. Of course, like Joe Ricketts actually started DNA Info, but when his employees decided that they wanted to unionize, his interest in pursuing, you know, this uh, publishing project that, you know, a lot of people had come to love and rely on was at an end, and, and so was the journalism. So it's our contention that if we can protect the money and the source of the money, uh, from outside influences that you know could have any of 
a number of agendas. You know, maybe they don't like what's being published. Maybe they don't like unionization or business model changes. Maybe they don't um, approve, like, you know, personally they feel attacked. You know, they're a thin-skinned billionaire. These are all things that we can protect ourselves against if we have a, a better, more egalitarian means of funding our work. And so the the model you're working with, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, it's a cooperative owned by the different publications that are, uh, you know, that come together in it. And people, consumers can um, buy subscriptions to them together. So the the strength is in the shared, the shared subscription. Is, is that right? The shared uh, kind of solidarity of, of, of revenue source. There's several aspects of this form of ownership that are novel. One of them is, yes, one subscription buys access to all, like right now we're nine publications. We hope for that number to grow as we get more revenues. Um, And uh, we're sharing not only subscribers, not only revenues, but expenses. So there are economies of scale, obviously, for a bunch of publishers who are sharing, um, you know, all kinds of resources from, you know, photo accounts, emailing, you know, all kinds of things that we can hire one or two people to do instead of each of us having to hire one person, you know, to be in charge of social accounts or stuff like that. So that that's like one aspect of it. Another one is... Um, ownership itself is a huge issue in what we're talking about because it's, I wanted to make really sure when we wrote the operating agreements that it would be impossible for someone to do a hostile takeover of this entity. And so we talked to a lot of lawyers and read a lot of cooperative agreements and figured out um, a way to do this. The way it works is the equity in the company is not for sale ever. We own it cooperatively right now. There's like nine shares and each share costs $1. So that when you enter the cooperative, you have to buy a share for $1. However, you can only do one thing with that share. You can only sell it back to the company for $1. You can't sell it outside. You can't buy anyone else's you can't, you know, sort of collect them so that you can get more power over the board. You know, we've seen so many hostile board takeovers in all kinds of businesses, not just journalism, you know, oh, where, yeah. um, you know, some entity will decide that they, they want control. And, you know, it can be anything. It can be like a, a co-op board of, of a building or it can be like, um, there was a really great story recently about a, a town in upstate New York that a religious group tried to get control of by um, pretending to buy houses. It was like really fascinating, like, you know, ownership and control so that you can determine like what other people are able to do is like a gigantic issue in a capitalist economy like ours. And so there's things that we can do to make it, you know, more protective for the, the people who actually do the work. 
Yeah, well, it, it's a really, um, you know, it, it's just the last few months, there have been a number of um, what we call demutualizations of, of um, shared owned businesses here in Colorado, the employee owned New Belgium Brewing was formerly fully employee owned acquired by uh, Japanese beer conglomerate and and mountain equipment cooperative in Canada uh, just uh, got uh, pulled out of out of a bankruptcy by uh, the acquisition by a, an American company, um, you know, a few months ago, maybe a year or two ago, uh, True Value Hardware, a cooperative of local hardware stores, was, uh, acquired by private equity and at least a majority stake. So it, it really is a, a serious vulnerability, and and so it's it's great that you're thinking about it. How is the how is it coming so far? How are, are people? Um, stepping up, you, you've had a successful Kickstarter campaign, but do, you, do are you seeing signs that a uh, that subscribers are going to be drawn to this model? Well, we don't have a product yet, which is the fascinating thing about this. You know, this this project is a successor of an earlier uh, blockchain based project called Civil that failed last spring and. Um, there were a bunch of us who had been sort of left high and dry who had built these publications with a view to sort of a tokenization that had many of the same uh, objectives as the as the brick house does but you know uh, the the sort of means by which we planned to get there were through a, a token project that did not materialize you know in the crypto winter and so on and and people in Colorado here will recognize that the Colorado Sun was also one of the the publications that was part of civil Yes. And, you know, each of us kind of had his uh, different sort of histories. Like the Colorado Sun came with a, a readership, you know, and a, and a history. And, and I'm a huge admirer of that organization. And also the, the other regional publication that did really well out of civil was um, Block Club Chicago, who have... Um, you know, they're nonprofits who are just, you know, it took a different approach to this whole process and have, have been successful, like on a, on a kind of a different sort of plan. But um, for us who had started these publications, like I was not like a, you know, a veteran editor looking to resuscitate an existing publication. I was a information activist trying to instantiate ideas about, um, cooperative ownership from the beginning. So there were sort of different, different approaches at civil and different projects. And, and, you know, we've had a lot of different kinds of success with it and just getting people to think about these things in a different way to me is like a huge triumph there. Anyway, there were a few of us left. We had these publications, very small startups, you know, a few hundred or a couple thousand subscribers each, you know, we're like, well, what are we going to do with this now? that civil isn't working. And it just seemed like, wow, you know, we've got this huge resource of people who are very interested in what we're doing. Let's see if we can't make this work. And so we spent a few months studying cooperatives and, and reading, as I say, and, and drafting agreements and kind of trying to solve the same problems, but like sort of freed from the, uh, the, the crypto aspect of it. And, uh, I think it's 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 been insanely promising, you know, considering that we came out of a failed project and we uh, don't have a product yet. And, 
you know, we've been able to raise nearly a hundred grand just to try this. And so it's, it's incredibly stimulating and great. And we know we're right in the middle of the development. It's hugely exciting. My favorite developer in the world is like freed himself up to work on it. It's kind of the most inspiring thing is that a lot of the people who are involved in this just are doing it because they believe in it. They've made a way to participate and, you know, because we don't really have enough, we haven't raised enough money to pay salaries yet. We've just raised enough money to start building it. And so the real work of it just sort of began at the end of the Kickstarter. But we feel like um, very, very hopeful. I mean, the kinds of people who have like reached out to partner with us and join us and, you know, who've joined us in our advisory council and who are helping us build it are, are really impressive. And I think, I think we're going to really surprise everybody with how great this thing is going to turn out to be. And what, one feature of it that, that I think is really running against the grain of what's happening now is, is this um, turn toward kind of collectivization. Um, it, you know, I, I've been thinking a lot about like the rise of Substack, you know, and, and the way you see these, uh, these star journalists at publications uh, leaving their publications kind of high and dry in a way, leaving their 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 colleagues who maybe they're helping to subsidize um, and going to this place where they can go directly to readers and get paid directly by readers. So there's this kind of reward uh, that this you know latest Silicon Valley creature has created to uh, pull off the the, the most successful, um, most kind of charismatic journalists and uh, pull them away from the um, from the kind of collective enterprise of of uh, kind of newsroom journalism. Um, I, you know, I, I wonder, like, ha- are there structures in in what you're building, a culture in what you're building, where um, you, you can resist that? For instance, what if a publication that's a member says, you know, we don't want to deal with you know, being bogged down by this whole group anymore. You know, we want to just go off and, you know, we're, we're doing, you know, five times the business of anybody else. Uh, why can't we just do our own thing and leave everybody behind? Is there, are there benefits in, in being together that kind of counteract this tendency that I think uh, uh, the, the industry is going to increasingly be facing? I have two thoughts about that. One of them is, I think it's been really harmful, and I wrote about this a little bit at the Columbia Journalism Review in my sort of intro to this project. I think it's been very harmful for uh, the industry of journalism in general, the way that we're taught to sort of look at look for superstars, you know, the sort of meritocratic um, notion that we all grew up kind of being educated in. You know, the, the better you do, if your SAT score is the highest, then you're going to go to the best school and you're going to make the most money. And, you know, others will be left behind <clears throat> while you go have your fabulous whatever it is. And I mean, I don't think that that kind of structure, sort of social structure within business has really served the industry because, you know, people will serve themselves. They'll go to the big outlet. They'll get like the big book deal and so on. But the industry as a whole is made weaker by that, as you suggest, because who is, has the power, who has the money, you know, these like really big outlets that are ad driven and are themselves vulnerable to outside forces. And so it's kind of broken the sort of um, the public trust, I would say that journalism should be based in. It's like a, 
it's this is just a, a sort of a sounds kind of airy fairy and philosophical, but I mean it in quite a practical way. You know, this group of people, and I know a lot of others who are interested in this in the same way. And I think a lot of people at Substack are also interested in this in the same way. You know, they, I wouldn't say that each of them is necessarily just pursuing, you know, his own interests. Um, you know, the, the many very good writers who have gone to Substack. I mean, if I were, you know, Casey Newton or uh, Anne Helen Peterson, who, who took these very sweet deals, you know, to write at Substack for a year at a really good salary and try to build an audience... That's just like a really sweet kind of freelance gig, right? Like, it's not really that different from taking, you know, a contract job or a ghostwriting gig or any of the other things that good writers sometimes get offered for a good price. You know, I, I certainly don't blame anybody for trying to get a good job. I think that's a good idea, especially in this economy. I think it's great, right? And I just think that, like, what's on offer to one writer is really limited right now. And so what I'm trying to do is just get people to think about the idea that we can kind of bend our efforts toward the health and solidarity of this industry. And sort of instead of like looking after your own bank account, you know, solely or trying to get the highest score or whatever, like I had written this phrase in, in this thing I wrote about, like each of us is sort of taught to like run on his own little hamster wheel toward his own little Pulitzer someday. And that's how you like win, right, at this. And I mean, it's nobody's fault that they're doing what all of us are have been taught to do. We just need, it's very difficult to like, but we're doing it. You just move the needle and create alternatives. To create the alternative, you really have to have kind of a business mind and kind of like a be a crazy person, you know, and like, take some chances. So like we're trying to do that, but you really, in, in order to understand even what we're trying to do, you have to think about the health of the overall industry and how you can contribute to that with your work. And I, I think people are very eager to do that if, if there's a way, right? And that's, that's why this project has attracted the attention that it has so far. You're listening to Looks Like New. We're speaking with Maria Bustillos. Uh, stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. We're talking with Maria Bustillos, a founder of Brick House, which calls itself the Wolfproof Media Cooperative. And she's been writing for many years at many different places, uh, the, the New Yorker, the All, Columbia Journalism Review, where she served as a public editor for MSNBC. Um, Maria, you described yourself earlier, or at least like I think implicitly did as, as a crazy person. Um, you've been a rigorous early adopter of new tech. You, you mentioned earlier the, um, the, uh, the, the blockchain project Civil. Um, how did you get into the habit of being an early adopter? When did that start for you? I just 
I, I am just naturally curious person and I'm also like super old. So I think like when <laughs> I, I mean, I like met my husband on prodigy, like you're probably too young to even know what that is. Oh yeah. It, no, like, no, I was around for prodigy. <laughs> it's like, it was like, it's so fun. I like still remember my user hand it was NPVX 84 a was my user handle. And oh yeah. Numbers were okay back then. <laughs> that's all they, it was like a system. Like my husband was JRFV29A. <laughs> and I would be so excited when I saw that. You weren't allowed to have a name. You were only allowed to have this very rigid series of numbers and letters. You couldn't choose them. But anyway, we met on a, on a literature discussion board. I just like grew up, you know, sort of loving computers and, and being really into them and, you know, old enough to like be, you know, for us, it was sort of like people would ask each other, oh, are you on email? You know, like that was like this really exciting thing. Like people would like, oh, did you get email? Like that was a thing, right? Like the birth of the World Wide Web was this enormous like thing in my life. So, um, you know, as uh, just a dinosaur, I guess, I was exposed to all these things as kind of in real time as they happen and just like live through it rather than experiencing uh, all this stuff as history. And, uh, you know, as a, a, a pretty committed uh, sort of First Amendment uh, absolutist, pretty much, um, you know, these issues became very interesting to me, like, you know, from the very beginning. And and so when I became a journalist, which I really haven't been for very long, like, I think it'll be 11 years, um, like this December. Um, before that, I had been a, a designer of like overpriced tchotchkes for the home and like all kinds of other stuff. So um I was kind of a serial entrepreneur, really, and ran small businesses and had an interest in business. My husband's a Wall Street guy, a lot of business talk in the house and interested in that. And so um, when when Bitcoin came along, I just thought it was the most fascinating thing. And, you know, like the early Internet, there's all this promise and it's like brand new technology. And I saw only the promise and none of the the terrible stuff that was going to come after it <laughs> but but uh I started <laughs> you're writing. one of those yeah I was very idealistic about it um and i wrote about bitcoin for the first time in i guess 2013 for the new yorker i just thought it was very interesting and um kind of you know, because I was sort of had a nose to the ground for like, you know, what is new, like in the information world, I could sort of see from the beginning that the valuable thing about this technology was its capacity to, uh, to produce incorruptible archives, distributed archives. And, you know, again, you know, I had grown up around sort of Napster and all this and had seen how those technologies played out. And some, somebody I was very interested in and still am. I haven't actually changed my mind about any of the sort of philosophical underpinnings of, uh, that, that drew me to civil. Um, just by accident, I was like the very first person like ever to commit the text of a, a, a news article to a public blockchain. It was really exciting for me. I actually wept in front of like 20 people on a conference call. <laughs> you wept <laughs> I did. It was so to join a distributed ledger. <laughs> oh, seriously, Nathan, no, you don't understand. This is so important. 
like I was in the courtroom when Gawker was destroyed by Peter Thiel in Florida that day. Mm, mm. And, and, you know, none of us who were there watching this incredible circus and charade, like none of us understood what we were looking at. We all thought that, you know, this is the Hulk Hogan show. We didn't know that the puppet strings were being controlled from above. And so when I found out about that, it really, it, it, I, I got to say, it changed, it changed my life. It changed how I, how I, it, it, I had been a pretty dedicated, you know, sort of advocate and activist for speech rights and press freedom. But after that, I haven't made a professional move since that day that wasn't based in this. And so it was very important, just the symbolic value or sort of the practical value of creating an absolutely incorruptible record um, on, a, on a public blockchain that exists on, you know, 20,000 computers distributed around the world. You could shut down the internet and there will still be 20,000 copies of that article. It is not possible for any irate billionaire to eradicate those copies. And so it just alters the rules of the game in a really profound way philosophically and, and kind of rights the wrong that was done by changing the rules and in such a way that, that, you know, all those journalists could be thrown out of work and their, and their work like erased forever, potentially. So you, you saw this potential early. I mean, for, for, for many people who've heard of Bitcoin or, or, you know, other cryptocurrencies, you know, they tend to think of it as a currency. And that, that was how I was first exposed to it uh, around 2012. And I just said, like, I don't care. I'm not like one of these crazy money people who mm-hmm. like to think about money. You know, yeah, uh, money's a means to an end. It's not, you know, it's not something I want to, you know, agonize about and kind of the Ron Paul style um, uh, of, of, you know, but don't you understand the federal reserve, but, but it was, <laughs> it, it was a little later for me in, uh, in 2014 where, um, where, you know, I first, you know, early in that year encountered the idea of what became Ethereum, mm-hmm. uh, and, and realized, you know, it took me a little, <laughs> a little longer to recognize this was about more than money. This was really about a kind of, uh, you know, a shared, uh, source of knowledge and a shared, uh, you know, shared resource of, of many kinds. Um, you know, I'm curious, you, you know, you built Popula on the civil platform uh, as a, you know, as one of the founding publications. What were you doing differently as you were building Popula? What, what was, what, how did the presence of this incorruptible uh, uh, data store uh, change how you built a publication on top of it? Well, it, it, it was, kind of a parallel track thing they they didn't meet really and in a way kind of they still haven't you know because when i joined civil you know the the idea was well let's start your start your dream publication so that we can have a test bed for these ideas it wasn't like you know here's the instructions and here's how we're going to do this it was like just we need to make a publication and we're going to do this and so i never even thought about that. I was not the type of, I was just a, you know, a freelance writer interested in a lot of things. And I was not thinking about, you know, uh, being an editor of my own thing, but it was very interesting to me. And I thought, well, what can I offer this industry that doesn't exist 
that would be helpful, you know, with the amount of money that I have or whatever. And I kind of thought, well, the thing to me that's missing was sort of that the sort of insularity of American media or like North American media or Anglophone media, I guess you could say, is a very big weakness. This idea that there's a, a center from which you look out at the world and, you know, it, the, the United States is at the center of it, U.S. movies and U.S. culture and U.S. journalism, I think it's it's really bad, you know, that sort of tendency to parachute people into places that they're not familiar with. And I mean, even within the United States, it's a huge problem. You know, we're like a big national outlet will go to a regional place without understanding what they're looking at. And so that's what I tried to make popular. So that was like this whole separate project. And we started finding journalists and people from all different walks of life, academics, professional people and getting them to write about, you know, world events and news events and cultural events, like from the point of view of their personal experiences so that, you know, you're starting to see a broader world. And so that became its own kind of project and something that I really fell in love with. Um, as far as being on the civil platform, I never, it never really was completely built, you know, the publishing platform where you had a bunch of people sharing the same publishing platform. We just had a series of WordPress uh, sort of CMS installations, like really, really nice ones, nicely built that had like the, they're basically like a, I don't know what you call it, a plugin, I guess, that's an, an open source plugin that I think anybody can use to write text or make records to the Ethereum blockchain we have that and still use it. And then um, with the sort of tag ends of the money that we had from Civil, I built a thing that had been dear to, to my own heart that like we never got around to building at Civil, which was a micro tipping system and a commenting system that are based in Ethereum. Uh, there was a big problem with the Civil project in that the the way in which the money was being raised and the sort of restrictions on tokenization were such that the civil token really couldn't be used for the purposes that we had originally envisioned without falling afoul of new SEC regulations that had been put in place after the project had started. This is a very big problem. It came up in the mid, kind of in the middle of the 2017 bubble where lots of people were putting money into into different crypto projects. But by the time it really emerged, the regulators were looking more carefully. And there was this question, is this a security? Is this a currency? Uh, is it a utility token? Is it just something you use in the app? Uh, so so all these kinds of uh, questions emerged that I, seemed like really confused users who might otherwise uh, participate. Uh, and by then, People had kind of lost appetite, but you, but you say you were able to still build in some of these services, some of these blockchain services into the into the platform, the the tipping tool yeah. and and the the commenting tool. Are people you know using it? Yeah, we have it now. I mean, it's we've only taken like you know a, a few hundred. I mean, very few people have Ethereum. We have taken fewer than five hundred, I think, tips altogether. But um, we did have one exciting moment where um, <laughs> Vitalik Buterin tweeted that he had left a tip. This is the founder of, of Ethereum the, yeah. at 19 years old. <laughs> yeah, turned up at um, at Popula and and 
was surprised, right? He turned up to read an article and had no idea that we even had this. And he was like really excited. <laughs> you get a kick out of that. But, um, you know, we built it and it works and I, and I love it. I mean, I was telling like Ben Smith interviewed me at the New York times, like right before, uh, the, the brick house Kickstarter started, he had a lot of questions and he asked me, you know, like Ethereum, he thought, he thinks it's a very cockamamie thing. You know, a lot of people do. There's been all these scams and I understand why, but reality is that the, the, the underlying rationale and basis for how this thing works is really, really sound. And there's been a ton of scams and a lot of chicanery, but everybody forgets that there is the same amount of scams and chicanery in fiat currency. We see this every single day. Nobody just says that we're going to outlaw fiat currency, you know, because too many people are scamming with it, right? That doesn't happen. So um, I I was very naive, not realizing that the same thing would happen in, in, in crypto as quickly as it did. But, you know, it did. And, that, and that's given people a lot of pause. But still, it's a great thing that you could go to a news article that you really love and contribute directly to the welfare of the person who wrote it right then that second frictionlessly it's it's really great and uh there's a there's a lot of things that we did with it that i think are really fun the commenting system is like your comments if you go and comment on an article at populate your comments can receive tips so eventually it would be possible to um, create like a whole economy around attention and engagement that would be really fair and wouldn't be about, you know, one person getting rich, right? It would be about advertising. It would just be about people uh, connecting directly over the things that they value and enjoy. And I'm a big proponent of that. But I should be super clear, none of that stuff has anything to do with the brick house. The, the brick house is not a, a crypto-based organization in any way. Mm-hmm. It's just, I'm still doing experiments in crypto economics and popular just because I enjoy that. Well, it, I think it's really, uh, uh, you know, it makes a lot of sense that you're going to, uh, you know, this cooperative model out of this um, this experience with crypto. You know, a, a question that's passed, gone through my mind a lot working with crypto projects over the years is, uh, why don't you just do an old-fashioned cooperative? <laughs> there's a system yeah. for the thing you're already trying to do, which is, yeah. uh, you know, there's a legal structure for it. Um, mm-hmm. uh, if you're trying to build something that's co-owned by the users, you know, it's been done before. It, you know, you weren't the first to think of it. Um, and at the same time, uh, among a lot of cooperative uh, structures, there's a kind of, um, you know, it's they're kind of aged. There, there's some fatigue. and And I think there's a lot of, powerful energy from the crypto world that can kind of infuse uh, that move, that kind of legacy as well. I think that the energy in crypto has been so misunderstood as being um, a get rich quick type of like what, you're, what you were mentioning earlier, the sort of um, Brock Pierce model, you know, people who are like Lambo, you know, that whole thing. Um, Short for Lamborghinis. Yes, it does this like disservice to the people who are involved in it because of what it is, you know, because of the thing itself and and what it can contribute to sort of human 
uh, progress if if people would just you know kind of get out of the way of the get rich quick thing. Um, there's a there's a lot in it that is sort of there to be discovered and and put into practice. You're listening to Looks Like New. We're speaking with Maria Bustillos of Brick House. Uh, we'll be right back. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. We're talking with Maria Bustillos. She's the founder of Brick House, which uh, calls itself the Wolfproof Media Cooperative. Um, Maria, t- tell us what, um, if this cooperative works out, uh, what does is, what is success look like? How is this going to be awesome? Well, success is sustainability. We want to create a system where a group of journalists of some size that we don't know what it is uh, can produce journalism freely for themselves and their readers and pay themselves a and healthy salaries and benefits and put some money aside for a rainy day and pay for their overhead and that's really basically it i mean there is a, a way where that looks like success with you know, as few as 25,000 subscribers, you know, if you remove all the other elements from publishing business that would ordinarily suck up a lot of the money, like a big sales force, executive salaries, you know, the need to produce surplus for uh, VCs or investors, the amount that it actually costs to pay and, you know, a dozen or two dozen salaries and, you know, sort of protect those livelihoods is really quite modest. So that is success. If it were to be more successful, there's a, I can envision a future where we have, you know, not 10 or not a dozen publishers, but a thousand publishers. And instead of buying one subscription to all of them, I mean, there might be some kind of huge Cadillac kind of subscription where you'd buy them all, but maybe you would choose 10 or 20, you know, for the same amount of money and we would be able to support, you know, 25,000 journalists. And that, that would be the great success, right? The giant success. I remember talking about this with Corey Sika, who's at the times now many years ago and saying like, you know, look, people used to have a newspaper delivered to the house every day when I was a child and it wasn't cheap. It's like, you know, probably the equivalent of $250 a year or something like that. Like, why can't we just everybody still pay that same $250 a year, but all of us get all the papers. We now have the technology to do that. It's not, it's, it's really quite trivial, you know, at this point, what's not trivial is getting people to think about it like that and getting people away from the idea that you need to be making somebody else rich by, you know, telling the truth about what you see going on around you. And, you know, this this particular industry has such a responsibility to the community that looking at it as a, as a winner-takes-all sort of equation or like a, a meritocracy or, you know, something to be looked at as a business of profit-making first is, is catastrophic for democracy, as, as we have seen. 
Now, one of the stories that that um, is kind of part of the understanding this media moment, I think, is this this shift from um, the media as a kind of local organ, right? Where you know, like you're getting your your local paper delivered to your door, to this kind of centralization where, like, all over the country, people are reading the New York Times, the Washington Post, Fox News, whatever it is, Breitbart, um, and uh, and and so you have this kind of these these smaller publications, also much more niche ones. Um, so you're, you, you know, you're going to, um, uh, you know, a particular place for your sports coverage uh, or your election coverage or whatever it is, um, rather than trusting your kind of generalist local paper for all of those things. Um, does this f- kind of fit into that logic where it kind of allows for um, some of these patterns of, of kind of uh, a special intense specialization, you know, where you're able to kind of recapture the kind of the general pot that 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 you once had from the from the local paper, but still get those kind of hyper specialized uh, emerging. Another way of question of asking the question is is who is coming to this? Who is what kinds of publications are seeing this as an exciting possibility for them? And and are there others that really aren't? When I was growing up. There was a range of approaches to explaining what was going on in Los Angeles, and they were all they were all quite good and interesting in their way. Like I was a big fan of the LA Weekly in its heyday. It used to be in, like you know more than an inch thick, right? It was massive. It's like had um, you know every listing of every club in the world and like amazingly detailed and beautifully researched uh, accounts of what was going on in local politics and the entertainment industry and but i mean that wasn't enough right you would also look at the new york times and you'd also look at los angeles magazine and if you lived in los angeles all of these things were intensely interesting to you because they were all about the things that are going on right all around you, right? I was like a very, very big media hound when I was a kid. And so I think there's room for all of those approaches now and more because we're entering into a new kind of world that none of us has seen before. And uh, the kinds of people who I would say are, are have shown interest and been drawn to and approached our project, and it really is a surprisingly large and diverse number of people you know, as donors and as, you know, people who want to work with us and journalists and all kinds of things. The thing that they all have in common is they just like the mission. You know, they they just like the idea that people are just going to write stuff that they see going on around them that they think is true. And there's a, there's literally countless ways to instantiate that impulse. They depend entirely on, the instincts and intelligence and inventiveness of individual journalists. And that is really what we want to encourage. What other things like can this, um, can this kind of model uh, collectivize? You know, you're starting with this subscription. Are there, uh, you know, I know with civil, there was the idea of having a kind of shared platform, a shared toolkit, um, is there the idea that there would be some underlying, you know, shared technology? Um, is there a requirement that publications um, have to use only this subscription tool or can they still do individual subscriptions? I mean, where does the sharing begin and end? 
This organization makes no requirements of its members other than they have to agree to abide by a code of basic journalism ethics, whereby they, you know, no plagiarism and they promise to like make their best good faith efforts to determine the veracity of what they publish, things like this. Um, and they must promise to publish on the shared platform twice a week. And you know, they can publish as much as they want. They can publish twice a week. They can do outside projects of any kind. There's literally no uh, limit on their business activities. So we ask these these two things of them. And, you know, there's a mechanism for getting rid of, of people who, you know, don't abide by, the, by those requirements. And also, like, the group is empowered to, um, you know, make decisions and, and changes in the platform, um, you know, by vote, by consensus. They can make quite drastic changes if they want to they those require like pretty much uh, unanimous consent so it's a very very flat very very egalitarian and and loose uh sort of agreement um in certain ways because we don't want to prevent people from doing experiments if they want to do them but we've we've given ourselves a way to ensure that the membership is you know, sort of consistent, has, has consistent principles that are defensible from a basic professional point of view. And if anybody thinks this is, you know, totally utopian and crazy, I think it's important to, you know, to point out that, you know, probably the only media organization that can compete with the reach of Facebook is the Associated Press, also a cooperative made up of news organizations. Uh, and so, you know, you're in good company in a certain sense. It was founded as a cooperative in the in the 1840s. At the same time, it has um, endured some really uh, tumultuous periods. You know, there a hundred right. years ago, it was kind of the Facebook of its time, where Upton Sinclair was calling it the most pernicious monopoly in in America, and uh, the, the there were all kinds of conflicts among the members, and and the the Supreme Court had to. Um, had to intervene in in 1945 and force it to open up its membership. I mean, there's all this uh, all this interesting drama and in what now appears to be like the more most boring um, uh, uh, real news outlet in in America. Uh, so, um, you know, already you, you know you've gotten you, you haven't built the 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 tools yet, uh, but you've gotten this going. You've got resources in play. Um, are you seeing any conflicts start to emerge? Are you seeing any signs of, of where the challenges are going to arise? Not yet. You know, everybody's uh, sort, sort of mm, battle scarred from the depredations against this industry over the last 10 years that I think just having something hopeful and fun and interesting to do that is, you know, pretty low stakes to start with. There's, very little yeah. money really invested in it, but we've all agreed that this is worth trying. And, you know, we just took the idea out, you know, into the sort of marketplace and got just enough encouragement, or, you know, more than enough encouragement, actually like really a lot of encouragement to like get it started. And so um, I do not doubt that there will be friction, but um, like I say, I'm old and I, kind of been through that and I'm expecting it and 
uh, I welcome it. You know, this is the way that we're going to move forward is by like trying new stuff. And even if it, um, you know, tanks for whatever reason, I think an enormous amount of good has been done through the work of, of these, uh, my colleagues and, um, you know, just like I said earlier, I think just showing people that there are different ways to do this. This isn't the first step and it won't be the last, but we're like, like you say, in a chain of, of people who want to see journalism practiced in a more ethical way. Now, uh, before I let you go, I want to ask you the question that, um, uh, uh, scared me half to death when I was on, on my first time being interviewed on live radio on NPR by Brian Lehrer in New York. Um, he, he asked, he, he asked me, uh, so what are you, a, a journalist or an activist? Uh, how would you answer that question? Yes. <laughs> I wish I had had that in my pocket at the time. <laughs> I think I stumbled more. <laughs> well, I, I think that if you, if you take this, if you take this business really seriously for what it is, I don't think that those are, it can be in any way mutually exclusive terms. Why is that? If you, if you are trying to tell the truth as you see it to other people, there's, it's absolutely inextricable from a, a moral philosophy of some kind, right? I mean, I guess there are people who do this as, you know, just as careerists and they just want to, you know, be successful and be on TV or whatever. But I mean, even the most careerist journalist in the world has some thoughts about how to position himself in the sort of, uh, you know, the constellations of media, the media heavens, you know, like there's each person sort of has a, a place, a, a point of view, how he sees the world. And that's, you, you can't sort of divorce that from the practice of, of you know, telling it like you see it, right? It's not possible. Thank you very much. Now, where can people find uh, more about Brickhouse and, and support the project and, and get involved? Thank you so much. I had the best time. It's the brick.house. Very easy to remember. And that's the URL, https colon slash slash the brick.house. And um, you'll find uh, all the resources, some sample articles, places to contact us give us suggestions, leave comments, donate, obviously subscribe. You can, anybody who wants to contribute $75 uh, will automatically get a year's subscription when we start publishing in probably mid-November, I think. We're like maybe a week late. So I think it'll be either the first or second week of November that we start publishing. You've been listening to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. We've been speaking with Maria Bastios, the founder of Brick House, uh, which calls itself the Wolf Proof Media Cooperative. Uh, I'm Nathan Schneider, a professor of media studies at University of Colorado Boulder. See, uh, Looks Like New is a production of CU's Media Enterprise Design Lab. You can find out more about our work at colorado.edu slash lab slash medlab. 
Uh, if you've liked this show, please spread the word and uh, share it with your friends and leave a review wherever you get podcasts. Uh, I'd also love to hear from you with questions and comments and guest ideas. You can reach me at medlab at colorado.edu. Hope you'll join us next month.